the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we ask you as we meditate, begin our meditation on your Son, we ask you to send your Holy Spirit to enlighten us, to guide us, to help us better understand your Son who did become one of us and came for our salvation. We ask this through Christ our Lord. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, again, we're, uh, after three weeks, it took us a little while to get to this point, but we are, once again, d- jumping back into the catechism. We are uh, talking about the creed. Now, if you remember, again, three weeks ago, we finished talking about, I believe in God, the Father Almighty. You know, we talked about what it, what the, who the first person of Trinity was, what our relationship was with him, and so on. And, you know, our, our, you know the sins that we fall into and so on. Today we're going to start talking about our Lord, you know, the second person of the Trinity. And we're going to talk about, you know, our Lord Jesus Christ, why he became man, and being born of the Virgin Mary. So, kind of to begin with, the Catechism tells us that by his coming as man, he fulfilled the, the promises of God. God had made promises to humanity all the way back, and we'll talk about this a little bit in, here today, all the way back to Adam and Eve, and made promises of what you know of this self, of the Savior that was going to come. And our Lord Jesus fulfilled those promises. And this really is the basic gospel message. This really is the basic gospel message that, as the Catechism says in paragraph four twenty three. We believe and confess that Jesus of Nazareth, born of a Jew and of a daughter of Israel at Bethlehem, at the time of King Herod the Great and the Emperor Caesar Augustus, a carpenter by trade, who died crucified in Jerusalem under the procreator Pontius Pilate during the reign of the Emperor Tiberius, is the eternal Son of God made man. So this person, Jesus, who did exist, he was a real person who lived in time, lived in a place, a particular place in a particular time, was and is the Son of God made man. He became flesh for us, for our salvation. That's, again, that is the gospel message. That this message that we proclaim isn't something that's abstract, it's not something that's in theory, it's an actual fact. It's a fact that is human. Jesus was fully God, fully human. And the purpose of teaching, like we are doing here, is to proclaim Christ. I've mentioned that before, where the reason why we do catechesis, the reason why we do this, this kind of teaching, why we do religious education, is so that we can know, understand, and seek communion with Him. So that we can know our Lord, we can know who He is. We can understand Him. We can understand why He did what He did, what He taught, and so on. And then, of course, to seek communion with him, that we can have that relationship with him on a personal level, that he wants us to have that relationship to have a personal level. And it's important that we, as who, the regular Catholics, come to know him, because our call is to go out and evangelize, to go out and proclaim the world, proclaim him to the world. We can't do that if we don't know him first. If we don't know our Lord first, we can't then go out and proclaim him to the world. We're not going to be proclaiming him if we don't. 
So we have to come to know him better and be drawn closer to him so that we can then have the grace to proclaim him. So this is why things like this are so important. Why we go through all these things in the catechism, all, this, all that stuff that's in that big old book, is so that we can know him better. And so the, the, the catechism starts talking about, about our Lord by looking at his titles, words that we, names that we use for him, titles that we use for him. And of course, the first name is Jesus. His first name, if you will. By the way, Christ isn't his second name. It's not like our uh, names today where we have a family name that comes after our given name. Jesus was his given name. And when you look at the original Hebrew, the name of Jesus means God saves. And that gives us a clue about his name. Because it's not just a signifier. Corey, Rick, you know, whatever. That identifiers that we are given or give ourselves to say who, you know, to point out to me. It doesn't mean, my name doesn't mean anything more than this person sitting right here. It doesn't have any special meaning for my life. For Jesus, it does. For our Lord, it does. It's more than just an identifier. It, it shows, first of all, who he is, God, and why he came. To save. You know, his name shows his whole message, shows who he is and what his, mean, what his mission was and is here on earth. And it tells us that all of salvation history is fulfilled in him. It's completed in him. That he came, that God who had been preparing the Israelite nation all the way through the Old Covenant sent him to fulfill the salvation from sin. Because the fact is, when we talk about sins, one of the reasons why we shouldn't minimize sin is because sin is not so much about what we do to each other, even though that is obviously an aspect since we are called to love our neighbor. Sin is an offense first and foremost against God. When we sin, we first and foremost offend God by our actions. And often those actions also offend those around us. And so only God can save us, can forgive us those offenses against him. You know, it, it's, it's like saying, you know, if I, if I say something about Donna and I give her a hard time and she gets upset, I can't go to you and say, well, I'm sorry I did that to Donna. You know, and you'd be like, hey, I'm right here. Talk to me, you know. You know, she can't forgive me for offending you. And just like we can't forgive each other for offending God. Only God can forgive us for our offenses against him. Now, he wants to, and that's why he sent our Lord. But only God can do that. Now, we call, it, call his name Jesus because that is the Latin version, was it the Latin version of the Greek version of the Hebrew? It's gone through like three or four tra translations. So it's English to Latin, or Hebrew to Greek to Latin to English, is kind of how that went. But the original Hebrew form is Yeshua. In that first part, Ye, that's the divine name of God. Remember YHWH? That divine name that the, the Jews never said because it, was, it, was, it should not be pronounced by unclean tongues, how they would put it. Well, that's that first part of Yeshua, 
is the divine name. So the divine name of God, the I am who am, is in his name. And then the end of it, the Shua is save. As, as my extremely limited understanding of Hebrew and the professors who taught me at seminary would tell you it means. So <laughs> I don't claim to know Hebrew at all. But it means, again, that this name of Jesus is something that is special. You know, we looked in the Acts of the Apostles. There is no other, uh, no other name under heaven given, by, given among men by which we must be saved. You know, that's Acts 4.12. There's no other name by which we must be saved. Uh, Philippians 2, uh, 9 through 10. It is the name which is above each or every name. The name which is above every name. It is a sacred name, the name of our Lord. Um, which, unfortunately, a lot of people don't recognize that, that it is a sacred name. That's a name that should be said with respect. You know, there's another spot in the scriptures where we're talking, you know, at, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. You know, traditional practice we do is we'll, you know, might do a little head, head bow or something like that. Some way to recognize that name. And, and of course, you go out there, you go over to the bars, you go out in public, you'll hear our name, our Lord's name everywhere. And they're not using it as a blessing. They're using it as a curse. You know, this, you know, when we talk about taking our Lord's name in vain, that's what they mean. If someone gets upset and GC it and, you know, and all this stuff, and people don't recognize anymore that this is a special name that should be always spoken with respect and reverence. And I hate to say it, many of us Catholics are pretty bad for this too, let's be honest. We, tend, we can slip up and use the name of Jesus improperly or GD it or something like that. You know, we, we can take God's name in vain, but we should recognize that this is a name that has power. This is a name that brings salvation. And so we should treat it with respect. Treat it as a prayer. The name of Jesus is very much a prayer. Um, there are, you know, devotions that are just repeating the name of our Lord. In prayer, there's uh, the Eastern prayer, Jesus, uh, Jesus Christ, son, our Lord Jesus Christ, Son of David, have mercy on me. Our Lord Jesus Christ, Son of, or, or Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. You know, and that's a prayer that we can repeat over and over, invoking our Lord. And so, we've got the name, his his name, Jesus, and then he has the title of Christ, Christos in Greek means Savior. He is the Messiah, the one who was anointed to be the Savior of the world. And we talk about anointed, you know, we, we, we kind of understand this concept when, like with confirmation, the bishop will take holy oil and put the sign of the cross on the forehead of those who are anointed. That is sealing them with the Holy Spirit. It's anointing them with the Holy Spirit. Well, Jesus was also anointed by the Holy Spirit, and was anointed for the mission that was given to him by the Father. That mission of salvation. That mission of being priest, prophet, and king. We hear those, those words that he came to be the fulfillment of the priests, the prophets, and the kings of the Old Covenant. You know, to, to minister, to, set, to offer the sacrifices, to be a prophet who proclaimed the word, to be the king who led and guide, guided, ruled. 
over the kingdom of heaven. He was anointed by that and anointed by the Father with the Holy Spirit. You know, just as we are anointed with the Holy Spirit, like I said, at confirmation, or a priest, his hands are anointed, are covered in oil at their ordination, and so on. Um, this, this idea of anointing is something that we still do in the church today. And it, it is ascending in a mission. It's, a, it's giving us a mission. When we were anointed at baptism and confirmation, it was to go out and to be Christian to live for Christ, to proclaim His name, to bring people to Christ. That is, you know, that is our mission. Well, the, no difference for Him. He is, he is the anointed. He is the one who is anointed. And He was anointed to fulfill the promise that was given uh, to King David. King David was told that his offspring, someone in his family line that will be after him, would be the one to save the world, would be the one to free the people of Israel. And this is why our Lord was called the son of David. You know, he, he was known to be of David's line and he was known to be the one to fulfill that promise. Well, the problem at the time of our Lord was this Messiah, this son of David who was going to free Israel. They saw it as a political thing. They thought Jesus came, the Messiah came to kick the Romans out of Israel. He was going to come, out, come in and raise a big army and kick the Romans out and reestablish the Israelite nation, reestablish the Israelite kingdom. And, of course, he didn't. <laughs> they thought he was going to be the one to reunite the tribes of Israel, that they would all come back, all 12 tribes would come back together. Well, he did, just in, not in the way people expected. Because, of course, he reunited the whole world with Israel, with God. But they didn't know what his true mission was. That he was, he was to be the king. He was to be the king who came down from heaven. He was to be the king, but the king of the kingdom of heaven. Not an earthly king. Not somebody living in a palace somewhere in a land over across the sea. But the king of heaven. And he also came as a suffering servant. This is the title you'll often hear from the prophet Isaiah, is that our Lord was a suffering servant. That he came to suffer and die. As um, Matthew says, Matthew 28, 20, 28, that he gave his life as a ransom for many. And this mission was only revealed when he hung on the cross. That is when his, the fullness of his mission was revealed because that is what he came for, was to hang on the cross. That is how he saved us from his, our sins. That is how he united the nations and became the king of heaven, the king of the kingdom of heaven, the ruler of the kingdom of heaven. And so, next title that, that the Catechism talks about is the only Son of God. Now, this title of Son of God is something you see through the Scriptures. It had been used by many people in many peoples and many groups. It was not something that was unique to our Lord to say that he was the Son of God. That even when our Lord himself said that he, before his death and resurrection that he was the Son of God, people very easily could have taken it the way others did in the Old Covenant. In the Old Covenant, the, 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 the title of Son of God was given to the angels those messengers who came to bring messages from God. They were given to the children of Israel. The people of Israel were called 
sons of God. And then the kings of Israel, especially King David and so on, were called son of God, sons of God. And so it's more of an obviously an adoptive sense of being sons and daughters of God. And that could be very likely how it was taken during our Lord. But our Lord was saying something different. He wasn't just saying he was a son of God. He was saying he was the only son of God. And that's a very different connotation because we can call ourselves sons and daughters of God through our adoption at baptism. We are sons and daughters of the Father. Jesus, by saying he is the only son of God, is that it is a divine sonship, that he has been with God for all eternity as the son. He will be with God for all eternity as the son. There was never a point when he was not the Son of God. Um, it's very different again than ours. We became sons of God at our sons and daughters of God at our baptism. And so when Peter professed that you know you are the Christ, the Son of God, he was actually professing our Lord as the divine Son, not just as a Son of God. Because that's why our Lord says, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but our Heavenly Father did. That is why Peter's acknowledgement of our Lord as the Christ is so important. Peter had that divine revelation, really. It was revealed to him that, yes, this is the Son of God, not just a Son of God, not just an adoptive Son. This divine sonship, the fact that Jesus is the divine Son of God from all eternity through all eternity was affirmed by the Father. We see this twice in the Scriptures. First, we see it at baptism, at His baptism. When He was baptized by John, you know, it says a cloud moved over them and a voice came from the cloud, this is my beloved Son. Again, at the transfiguration, they're standing there and, the, and Peter and the other apostles that are there are blinded by how brilliant the light is, and they hear that same voice, and they hear that same thing, this is, my, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. In both cases, this is the God, the Father, affirming that he is the Son of God, that he truly is the divine Son, and not again, not just an adopted Son. The final title is Lord. Now it's interesting for those of us who speak English and, and live in a culture that is somewhat still influenced by British culture. The term Lord has a, has a, a, ter, it's a term of nobility today for many of us still. We think of you know, someone who's, who is a Lord of a castle you know, in the Middle Ages. It became a term of nobility. But the title of Lord in the scriptures is the title for God. It is the word that was used in place of the divine name that was not spoken. So instead of using God's divine name, they would call him Lord. Adonai is, how, again, how it was in the original Hebrew. And so by calling him Lord, we are affirming that divinity of our Lord Jesus, that he truly is divine. You know, and it's not just a term that we use for people who are leaders, lord of the household, or so on. 
but truly someone who is divine is referred to as Lord, at least as the way we use it in the Scriptures. And this is why um, in the Gospel of John, when Thomas finally sees our Lord after he rises from the dead, what does he say? My Lord and my God. He's basically saying the same thing twice. My God and my God, you know. <laughs> um, but he's, he's affirming that, yes, our Lord was and is divine. And by calling him Lord, by saying that he is our Lord, Jesus Christ, we are saying that we are submitting to him, not to earthly powers, that we don't, we don't put all our eggs in one basket of the world. Yes, we, we respect those here on earth who have power, we respect those who have authority over us, but our submission, our obedience, is first and foremost to the Lord. I, the catechism, this is one of the places where the catechism sums it up probably the best, I, best I've seen. Uh, paragraph 450, it simply says, Caesar is not the Lord. I mean, it's that simple. The President of the United States is not the Lord. The Governor of the State of Montana, the Mayor of Cascade, the, the, the County Commissioners of Cascade County, whatever position of authority within our government, they are not the Lord. They are not God. So we give them the respect and honor that is due to their position, but we give our submission first and foremost. And so if there is a conflict between worldly power and the Lord, we must always go to the Lord, not to the earthly powers. Such as a certain Supreme Court case that hopefully, or that has been leaked and hopefully we will get the final results soon, we put our submission to God, what God says about it. Which, by the way, this particular Supreme Court case, Dobbs, gets it right finally after 50 years. It took them a while, but they finally got it right. But anyways, um, yeah, we, we submit to our Lord. And this is where I talked about prayer, but using our Lord's name as part of our prayer. Well, the same thing when we use the word Lord, the title Lord, in our prayers. You know, think about, you know, at Mass, you know, we, the priest says, the Lord be with you. The uh, end of the, all the prayers are always have something to the extent of through our Lord Jesus Christ or through Christ our Lord. You know, all of this is, again, giving our submission, giving our obedience, giving our love and respect to God, to Jesus as our Lord. There's even, you know, an exclamation that we we hear every once in a while, it, it kind of became really popular in the 70s, kind of faded off again. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Maranatha, come Lord. You know, there was a, there was a point, there was kind of in the, the charismatic movement tried to renew that phrase. And it kind of faded. But it's still a beautiful prayer. Come Lord. Oh Lord, come. E either way is, is a way to translate it. But yeah, it, it's... We should pray that our Lord will come, and we should call him our Lord, our God, basically, and to give our obedience. So, our Lord Jesus Christ, who, you know, we talked about these, these, these different titles for him. We do know he became one of us. He became human, took on humanity, became flesh. The question is why? 
Why did our Lord take on human flesh? Why did he take on a human nature? He's fully divine. He's God. He doesn't need to become one of us, but yet he did. Well, Catechism lists four reasons. And the first reason, it says, is that he became flesh to save us by reconciling us to God. To be reconciled, we as humanity need to come to him. Remember, we were cut off by original sin, by what Adam and Eve, how Adam and Eve sinned, cut all of humanity off. By him becoming human, taking on a, a human nature, he became one of us and so could then reconcile us. Again, this is the, I can't ask for forgiveness from someone I haven't offended. And I can't say I've offended this person, but I'm going to ask this person for forgiveness. He became one of us to be the one to, if, to ask forgiveness from God on behalf of all humanity. He became one of us to ask that forgiveness from the Father on behalf of all of us. But he also became human. He also took on human flesh, human nature, so that we might truly know God's love. He came to proclaim the message that God loves us and wants us to be with him for eternity, wants us to come to know him. He came to show the example of that love in the world, what that looks like, and to help us understand how we can live in that love. He wanted us to know that love, that God truly does love us. Third of all, he said, to be our model of holiness. And this kind of ties into that, that not just does he, did he come to show us God's love and how to live in God's love, but also how to live as God calls us to live, how to follow his will, how to, how to give our lives over in submission to him. And then finally, Make us part he became human to make us partakers of divine nature, to share in his divine nature. And of course, we do that when we receive him in the Eucharist. We receive the divine body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. We share in that divine nature, and we will share in that divine nature throughout heaven, throughout our time, eternity in heaven, if we follow our Lord. Now, the word we talk about when we say that our Lord became man, became flesh, is incarnation. And that just means to, to take or to enter into flesh. You know, we talked about something being uh, um, carnivore, meaning they eat animal flesh. So that's where you can see that carn, incarnation. Incarn, uh, he took on human, he assumed our human nature is what the church says. He didn't absorb it, you know, kind of like a... Um, you absorb, towel absorbs water. No, he assumed it became a part of him, not just sucked into him. This human nature did. But he did this, as I said, to accomplish salvation. And the Catechism quotes Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Uh, this is from St. Paul. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, that though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but rather emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. So he became flesh out of obedience to God. 
even to death, so that he can bring about salvation on our part. Now, when we talk about God becoming flesh, and I, I kind of hinted at this, he didn't just take on the appearance or look like he was human. He was fully human. He had a fully human nature and was, is, in both cases, is fully divine. He is fully human, fully divine. 100, 100. Not 50, 50. Not half human, half divine. Some kind of, they call them chimeras or chimeras, where it's a mix of animals. No, he's fully human, fully divine. And the problem... The problem with this, but only also the reason why we've, we've, this was revealed to us, is because of a bunch of heresies in the early church, a bunch of incorrect understanding of the relationship of our Lord human and divine. And most of these heresies focused more on his human aspect, not the divine aspect. His human nature, not his divine nature. <coughs> There is one that very cleverly is called adoptionism. And it's cleverly called adoptionism because it literally says that Jesus was just a human being that was adopted by God. He was just one of us that God said, oh, you're my savior. You're my second person of the Trinity now. I've adopted you. And of course the church said, no, that's not the case. One of the most famous of the early heresies was Arianism. This heresy actually at one point, if I remember correctly, more than 90, it's it said that more than 95% of the church at the time fell into this heresy in one form or another. That's how popular this heresy was. So if you think, oh, heresy can't spread like that, oh, yes, it can. I mean, eventually it was beaten back, but it took many, many years. But Arianism said that, that Jesus was of another substance. You know, we say in the Creed that he is of one substance or in. They're consubstantial with the Father, as we say it, in the same substance as the Father. Arian said, no, he's another substance, and that really he was the first created. Jesus was created by the Father in this other substance. Again, we don't believe that, that Father, Son, Holy Spirit are one substance. They are united. They are separate persons, but they are one substance. We talked about that weeks ago when we talked about the Trinity, Another, another heresy it mentions is Nestorianism. Nestorianism said that you had the divine person of the second person of the Trinity, and you had the human person, Jesus, and they were smushed together like an Oreo, basically. You have you know, the front half of the Oreo and the back half of the Oreo, and they're smushed together with the cream in the middle. Well... You had the divine nature and the human nature that were smushed together. So really you had two people smushed together. And so that would almost be like having, you know, uh, what, what is that? Like two voices in your head. The human, human Jesus and the, the divine Jesus talking to each other. And again, we say, no, he was fully human, fully divine. Interestingly, Nestorianism is when they first denied Mary, the Blessed Virgin Mary, who we'll talk about in just a little bit, as the mother of God. Because they would say that she was just the mother of the human person, Jesus. Not the divine person, the Son. 
because the two were separate but smushed together. And, and again, of course, we say, no, she was the mother of the whole person, human and divine. Of course, the divine existing from all eternity, the human nature came. Again, we'll talk about that in a minute. I'm not going to get too far ahead there. And the last one it mentions, it takes it even further. It says, okay, fine. You've got Jesus who's fully divine, you know, a divine person, fully part of the Trinity. He's got a divine nature, and when he became human, he destroyed the human half. The human nature was destroyed by the divine nature. And again, the church says, no. When we said you had both human nature and divine nature, we meant it. They were both there. Now, this is these words about you know, human nature, divine nature. We did talk about them a little bit earlier. But the church has clearly stated that Jesus is both God and man, a divine person with human nature and divine nature. That is the official definition of who Jesus is as far as these arguments go. Well, when we talk about a nature, a nature is, for lack of better terms, what we're made up of. And I don't just mean physical aspects. Part of, our part of a human nature is the human soul. The fact that we all have human souls. We have human knowledge. You know, we learn, we grow in our knowledge as humans do. We have a human will. You know, we have desire. We've got the intellect and the will. We talked, again, we talked about that. And then, of course, the human body, our physical stuff. This is all part of our human nature. Jesus had and has all of that. He has a human soul. He has a human nature or human knowledge. In fact, you know, we, we talk about, or the scripture talks about how he grew in wisdom and, and knowledge. He grew in wisdom. He learned what it meant to be human in his human knowledge, in his human soul. But he also had an awareness of divine things, of, of the divine knowledge that he had in his divine nature. Now, we don't know how, how much of that he had. We don't know if he had it all the time. I mean, there are people that they sit and have argued about this forever, about, you know, were things... Did he know everything divine? I mean, we do know that he had that divine knowledge. He would know what other people are thinking. You know, I, I always love that you get the Pharisees are grumbling amongst themselves, it says. And Jesus says, well, why are you thinking that about me? Basically paraphrasing. Why are you thinking such things? You know, he knew what they were thinking. He knew what, what was going through their mind. He had that divine knowledge. Again, human will. He had human desires. And, but his human will and his divine will cooperated with each other. There wasn't a conflict where Jesus said, you know, I really, I'm not going to go to the cross. Yes, you are. I'm not going to go to the cross. Yes, you are. He didn't have an argument himself. But we do see his human will coming out in the garden before he was captured. He says, you know, Father, if it is your will, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but thy will be done. 
So his human will would was still there, but was united with the divine will. Basically telling God, this is what I want. He's telling the Father, this is what I want, but I'm here to do your will. I'm here to do the divine will. So he had both. And then, of course, you know, he had the human body. Where this infinite God, both infinite in time, infinite in space, infinite in knowledge, became finite, became limited, became one of us. And this actually, I think it's kind of interesting, the Catechism talks about how one of the reasons why this is important is because then we can have things like the statue of the Sacred Heart upstairs. We can have images of our Lord because he was a human nature. He did have a human nature. So we can, pre- we can present him that way. And we're, we're not making things up. He really was. He may not have looked like the statue, but he was human as the statue portrays. You know, he had his human nature as the statue portrays. And he loved with a human heart. Now, I'm sure you all remember three weeks ago, ha, 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 where we talked about, um, when we talk about you know, loving from our heart, the depths of our heart, we're not talking about the physical pump that's in our chest. We're talking about the depths of our soul. So he had, if you will, a depth of his human soul that he loved us from. This, this place in our being, this place in our soul where we choose for or against God. He had that as a human being. So fully human, fully divine, divine person. Human nature and divine nature. Um, again, that, that's important because we've gotten it wrong in the past. That it's not a 50-50, it is 100% human nature, divine nature. Um, each. So again, it, it helps us to understand that he can be one of us because he was, just as a divine person. So we know, now we're you know, moving on as we go through the creed, you know, we talk about being conceived, that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And this is, of course, moving into talking about Our Lady, the Blessed Virgin Mary, that he was conceived within her in the Holy Spirit. And that image of Our Lady being visited by the angel, that, that what we call the Annunciation, where it was announced to her that she was to be the mother of God. This was the fulfillment. This was the completion of God's promises and preparation. That everything in the Old Covenant, everything in the Old Testament, everything for the millennia before then led up to that moment. God had said, okay, now is the time. Here's the place, here's the person, now is the time. And it was, he came, the angel was sent to her to fulfill that, those promises, to fulfill those, that preparation that had come to, had, been, had come to humanity throughout all those years. And so the Holy Spirit came down because the mission of the Holy Spirit is always united with the mission of our Lord. The two are not separate. The Holy Spirit doesn't work separate from our Lord insofar as, well, I know the Son wants me to do this, but I'm going to go do that instead. No, Holy Spirit always works in union with our Lord. That is why we can invoke the Holy Spirit at Mass. You know, send your Holy Spirit down upon these gifts that they may become for us the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Because we know that it is, it is the Son's will that at Mass, the bread and wine become His body, blood, soul, and divinity. And the Holy Spirit is how that is done. It is through the work of the Holy Spirit. They always work together. So this is how the Holy Spirit could prepare Our Lady by sanctifying her womb and then allowing our Lord to take on his human flesh from her. Just as a child in the womb takes on their flesh from their parents through conception and onward, especially through the mother, our Lord took on his flesh from Mary, from the human side. It wasn't like God said, well, I'm going to create this DNA and just stick it in her. No, he received human flesh from her. Again, just as, as we all did from our parents. And then, of course, was born. he was born of Mary, born of the Virgin Mary. In the Catechism, in 487, I like this, this sentence. What the Catholic faith teaches about Mary is based on what it teaches about Christ. And what it teaches about Mary illumines in turn its faith in Christ. So what we know and believe about Our Lady comes from what we know and believe about our Lord. And the opposite works as well. That what we know about her helps us to better understand our Lord. The two work hand in hand. Now if you've ever done the, uh, the Marian consecration, you will say that we are consecrating ourselves to our Lord through Mary. When we pray to Our Lady for intercession, we are praying through her to our Lord, you know, asking for her intercession. So the two, it, it, the two work hand in hand. She was predestined to be the mother of God. She was predestined from all time, going all the way back to Eve. She was predestined. And yet, she was given the choice. And what we mean by predestined doesn't mean that God had said, she's going to be the one and I'm going to make her do it. No. God prepared through time, through the history of the old covenant, the old covenants for her. Going all the way back to Eve. Going all back, you know, you read, you know, right after they did what they weren't supposed to do and they blamed each other and they blamed the serpent. He promised, God promised Eve especially, that a Savior would come from one of their descendants. That eventually, someone from their lineage, over generation after generation after generation, you know, many, 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 many generations, would save humanity from that sin. That was the beginning of the preparation. That preparation continued when you look at Abraham and Sarah, through the fact that Sarah was miraculously able to have Isaac. She was childless, could not have children, but then was able to have the child Isaac, who became the father of Jacob, also known as Israel, the person Israel. Through that lineage, and then there are many other women, the Catechism points out, that were part of this preparation. You know, Hannah, the mother of the prophet Samuel, Deborah, Ruth, Judith, Esther, and more. When you look through the, the scriptures, 
there are women everywhere who are part of this preparation for Our Lady. This predestination, if you will, for Our Lady. And then, of course, when that fullness of time, that completion of time occurred, the angel appeared to her and offered for her to become the mother of God. And she said yes. And even that her life itself was prepared for that moment. And this is where God being outside of time kind of screws with our minds a little bit. Because when we talk about the Immaculate Conception, of course we are talking about the conception of Mary in her mother's womb, not Jesus. The Annunciation is the event, is the celebration of the event of our Lord's conception in Mary's womb. The Immaculate Conception is the conception of Mary without sin in her mother's womb. She was prepared from the first moment of her existence to be the mother of God. But that preparation that she received came from our Lord's cross. She was the first to receive the salvation of God that came from her son. This is where I say the fact that God is outside of time kind of messes with our mind because we kind of think, how could you do that? We couldn't. You know, we cannot look at someone and say, I'm going to prepare their mother for their birth when they're already an adult. We can't do that. But God can. He can take those graces, that salvation, that redemption from, Christ, from our Lord, and apply it to his mother from her very first moment of existence at her conception. You know, the analogy I've heard used, and I really like it, is, you know, we talk about she was saved by our Lord, but she was saved in advance. We're walking down the street here. You know, a couple weeks or a couple months ago, they did the, the sewer cleaning here in town. And so you're walking along the street, and they accidentally left a sewer manhole open. And you're walking along, and you fall in. And you call out, and someone, you know, reaches down and helps you out. Did they save you from that sewer? Yeah, they did. Now, someone else is coming down the street, and they're heading right to it, and you stop them. Did you save them from that sewer? Yes, you did. Mary was saved as that other person who did not fall in, was kept from falling in, was saved. You know, again, it's, it's an analogy. It's not perfect. But I think that kind of helps explain how she could be saved from, our, from sin through our Lord's death on the cross. Did you have... God has no sense that there is no time in in God in heaven. Mm. So therefore, all things more or less happen at the same time. Well, and that's that's what I mean. Like he's outside of time, right? You know, because how time is how time is going to work in heaven is very different than how it does here on earth. But yeah, all of creation to God is a snap of the finger. Yeah. Everything from the Big Bang to the end of the universe is a snap of the finger to God. All of it happened at the same moment. So one of the things I've heard said is, when we're at Mass, and it doesn't matter which Mass, whether it was the Mass here this evening, Sunday Mass, big formal Masses, 
in God's eyes, every single Mass that has been ever celebrated, is being celebrated, and will ever be celebrated, is the same time as the cross. Same time as our Lord's death on the cross. It's all the same. Um, in His eyes. We can't see that because we're 2,000 years separate from our Lord's death on the cross. But in God's eyes, it is all, all one. So yeah, I mean, that's, that's, ex that's exactly true that it is. Time here on earth is basically meaningless to God. He just said, okay, this is when it's going to happen. In this, as we understand, time. And so, this was a special privilege that she received from God. Was to, again, to not have to suffer the effects of sin. And so, she shows us the example of what obedience of faith looks like. What it looks like in faith to be obedient to God. And of course, we have these words, let it be done to me according to your word. Her yes, her fiat, let it be done. Um, she was willing to accept his will out of obedience. And so she gave herself entirely to her son in service to him. You know, not just in, be, in carrying her for nine months and giving birth to her, to him, excuse me, carrying him for nine months and giving birth to him, but also throughout her life following. We know that she not just raised him from being a child into being an adult, but was with him throughout his adulthood up to the actual cross itself. We know she was there at the cross itself and then after as well. So she was so filled with God's grace, you know, Hail Mary full of grace. Well, she was so filled with God's grace that she might say yes and say that yes throughout her life in service of God. Now, when we call her the mother of God, we say those words that she is the mother of God. And of course, this is an argument with Protestants where they actually bring up a heresy, the old heresy. Um, was it uh, Nestorianism? Where we'll say, yes, Mary is the mother of God. No, she's not. She's the mother of the man Jesus. She's not the mother of God. Which, that's Nestorianism. That's where I talked about that earlier, where that, that heresy that said that she was the mother of the human nature, the human person of God, and they smushed together divine and human nature. That's not the case. Again, going back from weeks ago, I talked about how there's a... Uh, I can't think of the word, but basically there's what we... What, or a, th a theory, or and that's not the right word. But anyways, there's what we say about one person of the Trinity... Father, Son, or Holy Spirit, we can say about all of God. You know, because each person of the Trinity is fully God. Remember, I drew that triangle up here. You know, is God not, is, is, or is not, you know, all that. So what we say about our Lord, Jesus, we can say about God, the Trinity, as a whole. Now, we can't say about the Father, we can't say that about the Son. We can't say that when we receive the Eucharist, that we are receiving the Father. Can't say that. But we can say, when we receive the Eucharist, we are receiving God. Because we are receiving Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. You know? And so by saying that, she is, that Mary is the mother of God, yes, we are saying she is the mother of the second person of the Trinity, and where he has received his human nature, 
But because we can say that about the second person of the Trinity, we can say that about all of God. I much prefer to just say she's the mother of God than all that I just said. It's a little easier to just say that. Because we're saying the same thing. It's just a shorthand to say she's the mother of God. Um, now, of course, we've got... She was a virgin. We understand that she was a virgin. She conceived as a virgin. And this truly is a miracle that points to the fact that she that he is the Son of God, that he is the only Son of God. He is the divine person with a human nature and divine nature. Because, of course, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit in fulfillment of the promise that God had made through the prophet Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah 7.14 Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. That's unheard of. You know, that's... that's that literally is a miracle in the sense of something that is beyond nature. You know, it's, it's supernatural. It's unheard of the idea that, that uh, a virgin can conceive. There's a certain act that needs to be involved that means that person is no longer a virgin. But yet it happened with Our Lady. And this idea, interestingly, there's, there are those who would say, well, she couldn't have been a virgin, and besides, it's a ridiculous idea. That, you know, that was just made up. It's mocked. And it was mocked all the way back to the time of our Lord. You know, they say, oh, that's, that's just something, you know, it came from the culture or something like that. But Jews, the Jewish people mocked it. Pagans mocked it. None, you know, Gentiles mocked it. It was, it was not something that was done, oh, we're going to ingratiate ourselves with the surrounding culture. Interestingly, an argument that they, a false argument they also make about male-only priesthood, but that's another story for another time. Um, and it's the same wrong, you know, it's, it's the same misunderstanding of the culture. No, I, the, everybody except Christians mocked this idea that Mary was not just a virgin at our Lord's birth, but also it was ever virgin, was always a virgin. And yes, the scriptures do talk about Jesus' brothers and sisters. But I think here in Montana, at least those of us who have been around the reservations, we've got a little better understanding of this, this phrase where it says that he had brothers and sisters. Because there are some of them, like James and John, the sons of Zebedee, their mother was a Mary. Just not the Mary married to Joseph. It was the Mary married to Zebedee. You know, the sons of thunder. That Mary was somebody different than the Blessed Virgin Mary. Um, but here in Montana, you know, if, if you're familiar with Native American culture, everybody in your tribe is a cousin. Now, whether or not you are directly related to them, most likely, but it's so far off in some cases. You know, we're not talking direct cousins as of my mother's sister's son or my father's brother's daughter or something like that. We're talking third, fourth, fifth generation cousins. You know, so far off that most people don't even, wouldn't even know that other than living on the reservation, that they're actually cousins. So we, we kind of understand this, that calling someone a brother or sister could mean, yes, they are biologically related, but it could be more like cousins, you know, extended families, you know, much more distant relatives than just biological brothers and sisters, like we use that today. Um, so she very much was ever virgin. She very much was virgin. Um, and because of this, we are able to share 
in her motherhood. We are able to have her as our spiritual mothers. And of course, we see that on the cross when our Lord said to the, the Apostle John, you know, behold your mother, behold your son. That wasn't just for him, that was for all of us. That At that moment, we were adopted as her sons. That she took us under her wing. And this is actually part, about, part of his redemptive mission. This is part of redeeming us, of saving us. You know, we talk about our Lord as the new Adam and our Lady as the new Eve. You had the first Adam, the first Eve, and the new Adam and the new Eve. And Jesus is the new Adam who brings about the new creation and fulfills the new creation through the Father's initiative, but he brings about the new Adam. So she is the new Eve, the new mother of the living. Because our Lord, through his role as the new Adam, brings about new adopted children through baptism. And so she is our, our mother, again, our spiritual mother. And as our spiritual mother, and kind of close out, she shows us the example of faith. She is very much the example for us. Yes, she was without sin, but she was still fully human and shows us the example of what faith looks like. And so is the example of the church. She is really a model of what the church has become. The church we talk about as our mother, the church. Um, again, that, that, that caring, that nurturing, that interceding for us that the church is called to do. Well, all that is modeled, again, by Our Lady. So that's, I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe that he was born of the Virgin Mary. Any questions about this or anything else? Things that you might have remembered from years and years and years ago. I mean, months and months and months ago. I have one. Sure. Every so often when you walk, like you're in a shopping center, and an outsider, I call him outsider from the Catholic Church, comes up and they'll say, how come you guys idolize Mary? Someone that you know, though, that's... Yeah. How do you respond? We don't. We don't idolize. Yeah, there you go. That's the answer. We don't. Why don't you pray? Why don't you ask for her intercession? She's your mother. You know? <laughs> yeah. 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 That's no. That's that's. Yeah. One of my favorite stories from the Gospels is when Jesus changed at the at the wedding when he began his first miracle, if you want. Sure. He did the first miracle at the behest of his mother. Yep. When she said, you know, uh, oh, talk to him. He'll, he'll yeah. He'll handle it. Yeah. It, it's it, not my time. Yeah. Oh, he'll handle Too bad. It. Yeah. <laughs> Do it anyways. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of funny. That's kind of like best way a mother would do it. Yeah, exactly. Oh yeah. Don't give me your excuses. Just well, I, I love it. It's like you know, what's this between you and me? It, this isn't. I'm not here to turn you know give people more wine. Yeah. I mean, he doesn't have a problem with wine. He got called being a drunkard, but yeah. yeah. I thought that was a pretty funny story. It showed his humanity. Also. Oh yeah. yeah. Yep. I didn't realize that that Jesus's brothers were. Yeah, and that, that's, I mean, yeah, they, they, they were not biologically her children. Um, yeah, and that, that's, and there, there's a lot more we could go into on that. You know, there's a lot of more arguments about that and so on, but, but it just ultimately comes down to, it's, it's like St. Joseph would have known 
it's no, you know, once, once he had the re revelation from an angel that she was pregnant from the power of the Holy Spirit, you'd be like, okay, well, once he's born, we can have our own children, right? Yeah, oh, yeah, he had been like, oh, I mean, he loved her, he respected her, he cared for her, he protected her, but he'd be like, no, no, this is, this is too holy, this is sacred ground, we don't go there, you know. He, he had too much honor for that, too much honor and too much love for our Lord and for her for that, so... Yeah, it's, and again, it's one of those things that, that you talk about, like ideal, idolizing Mary and things like that. It's like, you don't get it. This is the most powerful intercessor we have. She loves us literally as a mother. Why wouldn't you want to talk to her? You know? <laughs> I've got a question, Father. Um, in lineage, <clears throat> Joseph was from the line of David. Yep. Yep. Okay. Now, now again, we're talking how many generations? I mean, we're talking a thousand years. Yeah, we're, yeah, a thousand years exactly, almost exactly a thousand years. So, I mean, they're both from the line of David, but you know, I mean, there's that's still a lot of two hundred well, generations. Well, see, yeah. See, I've read, I've read where Joseph was, and it's like matters not. Mary was. Yeah. Well, it, it, as far as as far as Jesus comes from the house of David. Right, right. Actually, it would normally come through the mother, not the father, but, but it both were. In Jewish culture, too, we're a matrilineal society, too, so that kind of makes sense. Yep. Yep, exactly. If your mother's Jewish, then you're Jewish. Exactly. Yep. Other questions? All right. <laughs> Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.